qualify. Okay, great. And we have a timer, five minute warning. Okay, amazing. Um, hi everybody, I'm Jess. I'm a compulsive overeater and sugar addict. Hi Jess. Hi, good morning, good to be with you all. Um, thanks to Katie M for suggesting that I speak. She was supposed to speak today and something came up. So, um, but it probably worked out well to be asked with little notice because I am a raging perfectionist. And so if I had been given a lot of time, my disease would have wanted me to plan and plan and plan. Um, and that's something I used to do early in recovery is plan my qualifications. And then I learned that I don't need to do that. I can just show up and ask my higher power to speak through me um, and just be, you know, just let it flow. So um, some of you I don't know, and for the podcast, I'll, I'll just share that I came into OA of, in August of 2015, so it's been about six and a half years in OA, and my abstinence date is May 24th of 2016, um, so about five and a half years of abstinence from binging. And um, I came into OA because I heard this podcast. So I'm very grateful to be recorded, to contribute. I'm really grateful to everyone who has done service with this podcast and um, and the other meetings that are recorded. Um, so shout out to you if you were doing that in 2015, because um, that's how I found out about the program. So, um, yeah, it's just really special to be a part of it. And what else do I want to say? I guess I'll just share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, so I am definitely a pure compulsive overeater. Um, I, in my disease, I love to eat um, and overeat. And um, I learned in this program and have seen, especially through putting down the food that a big part of my disease is a lot of obsession about food, like planning food, thinking about it, thinking about the perfect meal or like fantasizing about, oh great, we're going to this Mexican restaurant. Like, what am I going to get there? Can't wait for the guacamole, like that kind of thing. So a lot of the disease just operated in my head. Um, and I think a lot of my issues around sugar in part were fueled by, I grew up in a home where we didn't have desserts in the house, which I can appreciate where my parents were coming from with that, but it also meant that whenever I had access to desserts, I overate them because they were not available in my home. Um, Or if they were, I would sneak them um, when they were in the cupboard and, you know, lie about it and whatever. So um, part of my recovery around that has been just to recognize how much of a scarcity mindset I have in general, um, but especially around food, like a lot of fear that I'm not going to get enough. I'm not going to get what I think I need, you know, always like taking more. Um, If there was ever a time that something was cut in half, I was always taking the bigger half, you know? Um, And so that's something I've, you know, worked through in my recovery. And the overeating really kicked up for me um, in high school, and I think part of it was um, there were really high expectations for me for certain things and just feeling like I wasn't going to be able to meet expectation. 
and uh, that was too difficult for me to handle. So instead, I self-sabotaged by, specifically, I was a competitive runner, and um, my first year running was extremely successful. I was, like, written up in all these newspapers, and there was this big sort of um, conversation about the success that I was having and would have. And so that felt very scary to me. I didn't have the language at the time, but I realize now that felt very scary to me. I felt like people had expectation of what I would do. And um, I was too afraid. So I overate and uh, I never got any faster, which is, <laughs> if you know anything about running, that's not usual when you start really training and have a good, an amazing coach and all this. Um, so I ate and I sort of like, got in the way of of that success and squashed any expectations. Um, yeah, what else do I want to say? And I found in college, like, you know, food really helped me, or I felt like I needed food in order to show up. Like, I would, um, you know, when I had big papers to write or things like that, I always went and felt like I had to have the perfect dinner and then a dessert so I could feel okay to be able to show up to the library and do my work. Um, and, you know, I remember my first year in college, like having morning classes. So I would go and have breakfast and then go to a morning class and then get back to my dorm room and feel, and I realize now like very uncomfortable about like meeting new people and not feeling qualified and things like that. So I would just eat cereal out of the box until my mouth was raw, you know? Um, and so I can just see that I just didn't have a way. I didn't know how to process my emotions. Um, and I felt, to me, food was always comforting. Um, it felt like a breath of fresh air. I spent a lot of time, like, in the evening. I would do, like I said, I'm a perfectionist and I'm an overachiever. Um, you know, I got, I literally got straight A's. In grad school, I got more than 4.0. Like, I was just so, like, you know, work, 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 do, do, do. In college, I was the president of, like, every club. And so at night, you know, to kind of relieve myself after all of that doing, I would come back to the dorm room and then um, eat. And that was sort of like my way to breathe. And so um, I think I'll, I'll end there on what it was like. But I'm so glad this program has taught me other ways to breathe, breathe including physically breathing, you know, <laughs> taking a breath. And I no longer overschedule. Um, I don't overbook myself. Um, and I have other ways to like release, you know, and, and find comfort that isn't in food. Um, so yeah, I found out about this program by someone who uh, had an issue, you know, who also has an eating disorder. She talks about this podcast that um, it was really helpful to her. And so I found the podcast and listened for a while and finally made my way into a meeting in New York City. And um, I remember going into the building and getting in the elevator and two people, you know, saw each other and they hugged and they were like, hey. And I was like, oh my God, people are friends here. You know, like, oh, I'm just here to listen and get out, right? I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, but I did end up loving the meetings because I had never heard people talk about the things that they did with food that I did. You know, things like eating out of the trash can, eating and burning your mouth because the food's not, it's too hot. Um, eating moldy food, you know, all these things. And so I felt really validated in the meetings, but I absolutely did not want to sponsor. 
Um, I didn't want, I was, there was no way I was doing the steps for sure. And I absolutely didn't want to hear about God. Um, I almost left because of, because of God. And, um, I'm glad I didn't. So I just stuck around because the meetings were so comforting to me. Um, I just want to see where I am. And, you know, a big part of my recovery has been just right sizing the ego and humility you know? And so as, as it says in the literature, becoming teachable. So over time being willing to say, okay, I keep relapsing. My home group in New York was a Sunday, 1115 meeting. I love that meeting, but I would binge usually on Fridays and Saturday nights. So I would keep showing up to this meeting like the morning after binging. And it was just, I just like, couldn't do it anymore. You know, it's like, I'm so tired of waking up and the shame and just um, just feeling so upset because I felt like the disease was not my authentic self, you know, was not really who I wanted to be. Like overeating um, and always obsessing about food was not really my purpose and like how I was meant to be in this planet. And so I finally became willing to get a sponsor um, and became willing to work the steps. And you know, yeah, that humility is what gets me through, I think. Um, so I do want to share about, for me, like step two has been so important because like I said, I was very resistant to hearing about God and I came with no spiritual background, um, probably would describe myself as atheist and that's in my family as well. So, um, it was a big kind of hurdle for me of getting comfortable with the concept of a higher power and how kind of how the journey began was um, by this time I was working with a sponsor. This was uh, 2016. I'd been in program a couple months. I was working with a sponsor and she was a big advocate of a morning routine, which I am a huge advocate of a morning routine. It's been so helpful in my recovery and so every morning I would send her my food in the morning and I would read the for today daily reader. And I think at that time I was meditating begrudgingly for one minute because um, <laughs> she suggested it. And um, there was a, a night that I had, you know, gone to a friend's birthday party and then I had made a dinner. And this is very common for me. I would make a dinner. And then I would, you know, I'm still a little bit hungry and I would have a little something. And then I was like, oh, that's, that did, that wasn't quite it is often my thinking. That wasn't, that didn't hit, hit the spot. So I'd have something else, have something else, you know, go back and forth. And at this time, by my own guidance, I had created a food plan. I do not recommend this. <laughs> created a food plan. I was, you know, not eating um, sugar or any flour, no fried foods. I had all these rules around my food. So what I ended up binging on was um, dried prunes and blue cheese um, because like that's what was available in my house. Um, so that was very humbling because it showed me for me that it wasn't about specific foods. It was about seeking something in food that food can't give me. You know, I heard early in program, Someone said something like addiction is looking for um, like a physical substance to solve an emotional problem. And that's absolutely my story. So 
The next day, I was like in denial about this binge. I went to my meeting, and they always did day counts, and I didn't raise my hand because I didn't want to admit that I had broken my abstinence. Um, and that day, I was in such a food fog, I forgot to read the four today in the morning, and I realized at like 3 p.m. I forgot to read it. So I went to read it, and if you go and look at it, it's May 23rd, or no, May 22nd in the fort today and the you know at the end it has a question it was all about like honesty and overeating and the final question was have we stopped overeating and i was like oh my god i haven't you know the honest thing is that i overate last night i binged and that to me was the first moment of like there's a higher power because i felt like this book was saying you know was like i know your truth kind of And so that started me on a journey of there is something bigger than me. Um, And yeah, I've had many iterations of a higher power. Um, One that I picked up from a fellow or something that like helped me think about a higher power um, that I got from a fellow in New York was um, seeing pennies on the ground. She said that that for her was a little nudge from her higher power. And um, so I took that on for a while and started noticing them any, everywhere. And actually this morning, I was taking my dog out for a walk and I was a little nervous about the time. Like, I'd never been to this meeting. Can I get there in time, da da da? And I was like, oh, should I have taken him for a walk? Like, I should have asked my partner to do it. And then I looked down and in a tree well, there were two pennies. Um, and so that to me, again, was just my higher power being like, you're on the right path, you know? there is enough time for you to tend to your animal and still get to the meeting. And, you know, I had plenty of time, right? Um, so what else do I want to say about HP? Yeah, the, the concept has really evolved for me over time. Um, but what I've learned is that for me, I need a really gentle, loving higher power because I am innately very like do it the best, do the most, go, go, go. And I'm so grateful that I've had two sponsors in this program and they've both just been so gentle. You know, when I would call and say I relapsed, the response was not, you know, get to a meeting right now. Like, what are you doing? Work harder. It was like, thanks for the honesty, right? Thank you. How are you? How are you feeling? Thanks for telling me. And that's really worked for me because, um, I am like very self-motivated, but I, yeah, I just need that love and care because that's not what I was giving to myself. Um, so I have five minutes. What do I want to share about? Um, what it's like now is, yeah, I just, I have a much more peaceful life. And also a much actually more abundant life in a way. Um, there's a lot in my life. Like doing less doesn't also mean like actually doing less in my life. Because now that I'm not obsessing about food, I have so much more time. Like I couldn't believe the shift when I really, um, the when the uh, obsession was relieved for me, like, I can just do so much more. I can show up more because um, I'm less focused on myself. So, um, yeah, I um, I love OA. It's been so special to me. I've made 
so many wonderful friendships in this program, which is a gift, especially considering going to the first program and being real or first meeting and being really put off by people being friends. Now I'm like, I mean, my friendships in this program are so, so, so special and people I still talk to, you know, I was in New York for three years of my recovery and then I moved to LA and there's people I still talk to. We leave voicemails almost every day and they're in New York. Um, and, um, I sponsor, I, uh, yeah, I've sponsored several people. I have a sponsor and what I've been taught in this program, especially by my first sponsor is all I have is my experience. This is something I wanted to say at the beginning of the podcast is, um, the idea that, you know, the tradition of anonymity or the, um, 12th tradition talks about how none of us are any better or any worse than anybody else. And that's been really important to me because even I remember hearing this program and I was like, these must be the all-stars of OA or hearing the podcast, right? That if you're on the podcast, you are like the greatest member and people voted you to speak on the podcast. And it's important for me to say that that's not the case, right? There are qualifications in terms of like working the steps and being abstinent. Um, But Again, like humility is such a grounding principle for me in this program. And so to be reminded I'm no better um, or no worse than anyone else. And all I have is my experience. So when I sponsor, I absolutely, I only share my experience. I don't give advice because how do I know, right? And I ask my sponsees, which is asked of me, um, that they go to a nutritionist for a food plan. I don't know what they should be eating right? It's not for me to tell them what to do. It's for me to just be a mirror and a guide, um, for their recovery. So, um, yeah. And I go to meetings pretty consistently. I still love the meetings. I think it's really powerful when we can share, um, how we all belong, but also that there is a solution, you know, um, that I can live without overeating, Um, and I just want to say, like, I still really enjoy food. I love all my meals. Um, I eat well, but I don't obsess about food and I don't look for a solution in food. Um, and so that's a really big shift for me. And I'm probably at exactly at time. Um, so I'll end there. Thank you all for uh, listening and letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Any questions? Yes. Thanks. Um... Having come from um, obsessive planning of your food, and then now you do commit to food, how, you know, were there any surprises in that transition or struggles Mm -hmm. or? So the, yeah, thank you. The question was about having come from obsession about food and thinking about meals to then committing um, food in the morning. Were there any surprises or just other things that came up in that? Um, thanks for the question. So yeah, my first sponsor had me, um, commit food in the morning, which I did for about two years. I don't do it anymore. 
Um, but I would say it was a really powerful way to work the food plan. And it, I didn't know it, but I really needed it because what it showed me was that um, two big things. First of all, it showed me how much I was reaching for food when I wasn't physically hungry. So I would commit a food plan in the morning that came from a nutritionist. And then, you know, an hour after lunch, I would be at work and I would be bored or I'd be frustrated and I really wanted a snack and I would totally convince myself, oh, I'm so hungry, I need a snack. But I knew from the nutritional guidelines, like I didn't need a snack. I just wanted a snack. So that really helped me. It really helped me see the difference between wanting food and actually being hungry. And the second piece was um, that because I had to commit in the morning exactly, very specifically what I was going to eat, it helped me to kind of cut down on the obsession because I didn't want to spend two hours in the morning thinking about the meals. It's like, I got to go. I have to go to work. So, like, this is what we're going to have for dinner. Okay, cool. And then the decision is made. Um, and it was very helpful for me when I went to restaurants or, you know, with friends. I wasn't, like, I, I didn't understand how people could go to a restaurant and get a menu and engage in conversation when the menu is in front of them. <laughs> because I would be, like, you know, just pouring over the menu and, like, should I have this and should I have that? But I had that yesterday, but what am I having tomorrow? How many, you know, da 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 So instead, it's like, cool, I already told my sponsor at 9 a.m. that this is what I'm having. So thanks for the question. Yeah. Thank you so much for your leave. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how your relationships have changed, both with your family and partners and friends and stuff? Yeah. So can I talk about how my relationships have changed? Um, my relationships with friends who are not in a way have become more authentic. Actually, you know, my very close friends, I ended up telling them I was in recovery, but I didn't really talk about what it was. And then one of my best friends, um, you know, a couple of years in, she gave me the feedback that like I was more honest, you know, and like more present and things like that, that totally came from this program. And so it was just seeping into my friendships. I have found it hard with some friendships where I realize like the depth of this friendship is not the same. Like our conversations are a little more surface level and I find that a little bit challenging because I'm so used to like calling a fellow and it's not like, what are you doing? You know, how's the weather? It's like, what's going on? <laughs> like, tell me your fears. Um, and so I've had to have a little bit of patience and grace because I'm reminded that the depth of honesty that I've gotten has been through six years of a 12 step program. And I didn't have that before. Like I wasn't that honest. I mean, I absolutely used to lie all the time. So like, you know, I can't judge other people for, um, not going to that same emotional depth. Um, with my family, I'm really glad I've been, I've been able to be honest with them. They know I'm in recovery, but I do see, um, kind of, and I, I just hold it with acceptance, like emotional kind of short falls, I guess, um, or barriers where I'm like, you know, they're not prepared for this honest conversation. So let me, as people say, like, don't go to the hardware store for milk. Let me just recognize that and, you know, talk to my sponsor or call a fellow if I need to work through something. Um, 
but I would say on the whole, my relationships have been improved and, um, you know, I'm in a partnership with someone, it's been almost five years and we absolutely would not have that partnership if I weren't in recovery. I can see that a thousand percent. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is I'm so grateful in this program. I've been taught to focus on my side of the street. And so in a partnership, you know, things come up, uh, disagreements, whatever. And to just keep it on myself has been like a very challenging and important tool. <laughs> you know, I always just own my side and like he's welcome to own his side or not. But that doesn't matter. Like, it's just am I owning my side? And um, I think that's really strengthened our relationship. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering when you eat, you know, do you plan your food like what you're going to eat, you know? But mm -hmm. how do you keep your word with what you're going to eat? Do you like change your mind suddenly? Oh, I saw this, mm. I'll have this instead. Is that okay? And then, was yeah. That, when I do that, my food starts to get sloppy. You know? mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, and, you know, when you, Look forward to, oh, you're going to have this. You made this commitment. Right. Oh, I saw this, something different. I'll change that. You know, right. then it gets sloppy. Enough. It's yeah. like you don't keep your word what you want to eat. Like, totally. For example, let's say you have a bowl of cereal for breakfast, but when you get up in the morning, you see something else and you'd rather have that than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This happens with me. I, it makes my food sloppy, and then I get into the food, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I have a very bad habit of doing that, you know. I want something, oh, I, I made our that commitment, you're going to have this, you already made your agreement, then you see something different, and then you go to that, and then you think it's okay to change stuff around, like, just because you can have that, it's okay, it's the same, you know. Yeah, I hear, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 th thank you. I, I totally hear you. Um, so the question is about... Um, if you've committed your food and then you see something different and you want to make a change, At kind the of. Last yes, totally. So for me, when I was committing, uh, like I said, I, I sent my food plan, um, every day for about two years with a sponsor. And at that time, um, it, I, I could make changes in terms of like she wasn't going to drop me if I made changes, but it really wasn't in line with working the food plan for me to suddenly make a change. So for me, if I committed something and then I was, you know, at the restaurant and wanted something different, um, to me, that was like, oh, my disease is sort of, oh, it's a craving. That's a delicious food. That's going to be more fun uh, versus I've made this commitment and I'm committing to my abstinence. So for me, I, I didn't make those spontaneous changes when I was committing my food in the morning. Um, I stopped working with that sponsor and I had had, you know, several years of basically learning how to eat and learning how to make sane choices. So now I no longer, um, commit my food in the morning. So I have, and, and what I would say is like, I think I'm at a spiritual place and a grounding enough where I can make decisions in the morning, but I need to be mindful of when the decision is like based on that food is like tantalizing or it's, it's going to give me a rush versus like, I, I think what helps me is if, if I'm going to take it or leave it either way, 
with either meal, right? Like, oh, I could have that or I could have the other one. They both look great. Then I'm in a sane place. If I feel like I can only have, this has happened for me, like, you know, I'm hungry or I think I'm hungry and I want a snack, but it has to be this exact snack. That's the snack that I want. It's got to be that snack. I won't eat anything else. To me, that's the disease. I remember my sponsor saying, like, if you're hungry and you're willing to eat some carrots, then you're probably hungry. And that helped me because I was like, yeah, but if if I only want granola with peanut butter and like it's so cozy and I feel, you know, that is like feels like a warm blanket, then I probably want a warm blanket. You know what I mean? So um, I'm not sure if I answered the question, but I really it's relate. Like, it's like for an example, you want this, but you know damn good and well that is not okay to do, but you yeah. kind of imagine. Yeah, so sort of if you're, you know deeply that um, it's not as, what I would say is it's not a sane choice or you really want it. For me, that's where a lot of times um, the tool of the telephone has been helpful. So really intercepting between the thought and the behavior. And so calling a fellow and saying, I really want this thing. And what I also learned in in this program, my first sponsor used to say, like, there's no wrong decision. So if I end up eating the food, I'm not a bad person. I didn't fail. I got more information that maybe, like, wow, I really need to deepen my spiritual connection, right? Or maybe that food is a little too loud for me, and I'm going to take a break from having that food until it's, you know, less noisy. Um, But it's not about, for me, it's not about, like, doing the program right or wrong, but it's really that honesty of like, is this coming from a craving place or is this coming from like, oh, that sounds great. Thank you. I'll have that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, a lot of people are moving around right now. Mm-hmm. And you started out your program in New York. Now you're in L.A., both two strong places of yeah. recovery. How has it been different? Uh, moving to a different city because all the fellowships are slightly different. Yeah. And, uh, how has it impacted your program? What yeah. have you had to do to adjust? Thank you. Um, so how has moving impacted my program and what have I had to do to adjust? Um, something for me that I've seen that's such a gift of this program is that, um, well, first of all, the fellowship is everywhere, but also, especially between New York and L.A., there's a lot of crossover. So one of my lovely um, favorite fellows from New York had moved to L.A. about a year before I had. And so when I came, you know, she was like, these are the meetings. Here's come do fellowship with me. So I immediately felt a sponsee used to say, um, you know, be in the pocket of program. I immediately felt in the pocket in L.A. Um, because of that fellow, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but I would also say. You know, I used to travel almost every single week for um, my job. And I would, so I've been to meetings all over the country. Um, And it's just so beautiful to, you know, like the fellowship is everywhere. And I love that the formats are almost all the same. So you just, I felt like I would just go anywhere in the country and go to a meeting and feel like, oh, this is where, you know, this feels comfortable to me. The only adjustment I would say is that 
in my experience, LA is the only place where people clap after everyone share. So I have to get used to that. Um, yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Thanks so much for your share, Jess. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the, the fourth step was like for you? Yes. Can I talk about what the fourth step was like for me? So I've worked the fourth step twice. And um, both times, it's been such a gift. I love the fourth step, personally. Because um, it really showed me my patterns of behavior. and Or more so patterns of thinking that lead to certain behaviors. And then I do them over and over. So the first fourth step, um, I really saw... Uh, a pattern which my sponsor would call closed mouth syndrome, so not speaking up, and then um, you know staying inward and then eating over it was a big pattern of mine. The second fourth step I think illuminated a lot of judgment, um, being very judgmental of other people's behaviors, thinking I know better, just a lot of ego. Um, but both. What the fourth step really brought for me is seeing that I always have a part. And so that was really helpful, just knowing that, like, in any circumstance, I have a part. But also, like, discerning, um, I do have a tendency to take on things that aren't mine. So there was a really, I had a really terrible um, breakup in college, and the person reacted in a way... Um, that, you know, it was um, sort of violent and um, very difficult. And I said, well, that was okay for them to do because look at what I did. And my sponsor really clarified, like, no, their behavior was not okay. You don't have to own their behavior, but you can own what you did. So I don't know if I'm making that distinction well, but it really helped me see I do always have a part, but I also, like, other people's, outsized reactions are not mine because I think I I do have a deep tendency to want to avoid conflict and disappointment so I'm like always worried about how people are going to react so if they react negatively it's my fault is sort of a narrative I've had and that's not necessarily true some people react you know and that's their stuff that's not my stuff um but I'm really grateful for the clarity of the fourth step and I will also say the first time I worked the fourth step, the food got really, really loud. And I'm grateful my sponsor said, she was like, yeah, that makes sense because you're looking at all the reasons why you eat, right? And so so she was like, get it done. <laughs> you know, like, let's go because I was, like, picking up extra snacks and stuff like that. And um, and that made sense for where I was. And so I, I remind my sponsees of that. And I can see, you know, when a sponsor is deep in the fourth step and then they're like, oh, I'm obsessing about exercise. It's like, hmm, interesting. You know, there's a parallel there. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, hi. Thank you for your share. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you are a perfectionist. And, yes. Um, do you ever find it that it's difficult to sometimes getting something, thinking, I need to do this perfectly, and then letting that go and being able to just do it as best as you can at that Ooh. moment? And how do you deal with that? So I'm a perfectionist. Um, do I have trouble with kind of navigating feeling like I have to do something perfectly versus um, just, you know, doing enough? Uh, I still struggle with that. Um, and I'm grateful for the guidance in this program that I've heard, you know, um, people, what is it? Um, 
that it's better for something to be done. Like, uh, I forget the, the phrase, um, but, um, yeah, I still, especially with work, I, I still sometimes want things to be perfect. Um, something that has helped me actually is a fellow who also relates to being a perfectionist. She has said to me, you know, Jess, our 70% is like other people's a hundred percent. So it's okay. Like chill out, <laughs> just do it. And you know, kind of keep it easy and you still do amazing work. Like I have to remember that, um, what I do is enough. And, um, I think the bigger challenges for me is that the perfectionism has led to a lot of procrastination. And so I've gotten a lot of help in this program of just realizing that like I procrastinate because I'm a perfectionist. And so just start. And so tools like set a timer for 15 minutes, commit to a fellow, um, you know, action planning, those have all really, really helped me. Um, but yeah, I think there's probably more work to be done around kind of just the deeper layers of like, what do I think I'm trying to get by being so perfect? And what would it mean if I were a little bit imperfect? You know, my HP is probably like, just chill out. Like life is good. You know, we don't have to be, um, pushing for more all the time. Yeah. Do you ever have trouble letting go and being happy? Do I have trouble letting go and being happy? Um, I'm generally, well, now I would say I'm very happy. I'm a joyful person, but I really think this disease took a lot of my happiness, um, and specifically my levity. Like when I was young, I was very silly and just like always making people laugh. And then, um, when the disease was really big, uh, kind of through college and when I was going through some challenging times, um, I became much more serious. So I started taking life very seriously. And I think it's even in the literature it kind of talks about, um, you know, when we are on that spiritual path and we can engage in more laughter and we lighten up. And I really related to that. And I got to see that like being so serious was me trying to be in control. And it really came up in my partnership a few years ago, seeing like he would try to make a joke. And I was like, that's not funny. I don't, I don't know why you're saying that. It's like, wow, that's really not an energy that I want to live in. I don't think my higher power wants me to be like, you know, meetings, serious, like, um, I think my higher power wants me to just kind of float through life and have fun. Right. So, um, I think most days I let go. I would say when I get frustrated about things, this program has helped me kind of, um, again, kind of look at my part and one part of my part can be like, you're taking this really personally or you're being very serious. Like it's not that big of a deal. Um, yeah. Thanks. Anybody else? Oh, I think cause we started late. Were you giving some more time? I don't know. No, no, this timer is really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> There's no question. There is two minutes.
Two more minutes. Anybody else have a question? Yeah. What was the hardest amends? The hardest amends. Um, good question. Hmm. It's it's interesting because by the time I got to the ninth step, with my first sponsor, we got through the fifth step, and then um, she decided, it's a whole story, but um, I started with a new sponsor. It's all good. It's loving, but um, I started with a new sponsor, so by the time I got to the ninth step, I was like very ready for the ninth step, and my sponsor said, you know, I suggest in your eighth step list, writing sort of a green list, like, who do you feel ready? A yellow and a red, the red being like, I don't feel ready. And I was like, they're all green. I can't wait. I'm so excited. And then once I started, um, oh man, I was just like punting and punting and punting and realized like, oh yeah, of course, like my family, my ex, these are all on the red list. And I procrastinated for a long time. Um, man, but then I think, you know, by the time I got to them, for me, my experience of the steps, because both of my sponsors, there's never been a timeline. And so my experience is like the willingness and the readiness comes. So by the time I got there, I, I was ready. So, um, you know, it was hard to call my ex and be like, I didn't know how she was going to respond. Would she answer the phone? Did she want to talk? Whatever. And we had a very beautiful um, conversation and it was extremely healing. So I also think like looking back on it, I'm like, it was all great, you know, um, but I did procrastinate for a long time. So, uh, but my time is up. So I'm going to stop there. Thanks for asking.